act of domestic terrorism. That is what some are saying happened on Capitol Hill today. Having to, to look down the barrel of possible civil war. They were absolutely ferociously angry at the media. And we have not heard from the president. Where are we as a nation? Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're watching The Listening Post, where we don't cover the news, we cover the way the news is covered. Here are the media stories we're looking at this week. Chaos in Washington, D.C. The Trump base hits rock bottom, having been misinformed by the president and ignited on social media. The, on the one hand, on the other hand, legal verdict in the ongoing case against Julian Assange. And the Iranian general, who, one year after he was killed, has grown into a potent symbol in a story that Tehran wants to tell about itself. This was the week that the U.S. Senate mercifully made it official. Donald Trump will be a one-term president. And it was a week that had Americans glued to their screens, watching live feeds from Washington of what Trump is leaving behind. News anchors weren't quite sure what to call the images that they were describing. Was it a coup unfolding on Capitol Hill? An insurrection? Mob rule? Journalists poured over the president's Twitter feed, his rhetoric, his lies, the conspiracy theories, and they focused on the right-wing news outlets that so many of Trump's supporters rely on for their idea of information. Channels like Fox News, Newsmax, One American News. This president is on his way out. There will be a Biden inauguration. But term limits do not apply to the news media or social media. And that, ultimately, is where much of America's problem lies. Our starting point this week is Capitol Hill in Washington. Legacies usually take much longer than this to reveal themselves. This is treason. This insurrection. This is rebellion. Donald Trump is still in the White House, yet the news channels were all covering his legacy live Wednesday on Capitol Hill. I'm not in Baghdad. I'm not in Kabul. I'm not in a dangerous situation overseas. We are in America. And people don't want to call it a coup, but what else is it if you're trying to replace the duly elected president of the United States? These anarchists interaction and these people who are involved in this insurrection. News anchors and reporters in the field struggled to find the words. Quite an incredible uh, act that I... To accurately describe exactly what they were covering. Revolt is not is a word that, you know, can, can be used here in some way. They ran out of synonyms for the term unprecedented. Uh, nothing like I've ever seen. It is hard to put into words what exactly we witnessed today. I've been around here for a long time. I've never seen anything like this. And the question was asked, how much of this was to be expected? In a country whose president trades in lies and conspiracy theories. This was a fraudulent election. A land of competing news bubbles and news networks that cannot or choose not to agree on the facts. A country routinely described by its political leaders and its legions of talking heads as the world's greatest democracy. The invasion of the Capitol by supporters of Donald Trump uh, was a very predictable play out of the messaging that you saw in the media that supports and sustains Trump's messaging. The president appeared literally at a rally 
with thousands of his supporters and framed it as a, you know, a critical juncture for America. I know that everyone here will soon be marching over to the Capitol building. We want to be so respectful of everybody, including bad people. And we're going to have to fight much harder. The people who mobbed the Capitol were spouting information that came from conspiracy theories, information from conspiracies like QAnon online. That does not happen in a vacuum. That happens because there have been online communities that have been built around pro-Trump fandom, and most of those have been bolstered by conspiracies. People who call this president a masterful manipulator of mainstream media in the age of digital disruption give him too much credit. He did not invent the term fake news. Trump just harnessed it, deployed it against critical reporters, and had it amplified by the likes of Fox News, thereby devaluing journalism in the public's mind. The end result, polls show that roughly 35% of Americans say they believe the Trump narrative and not the mainstream media's on the 2020 presidential election, that it was stolen. It's fitting that uh, at, the, at the very beginning of, of his presidency, you had his advisor, Kellyanne Conway, uh, coining the phrase alternative facts. And here we are at the very end of it, where you have the majority of his supporters believe that the election was stolen. Because they live in essentially an alternative reality. It's an interesting thing to think about, to, to think about how much reality is based on collective understanding. And we don't have a collective understanding anymore as, as a society, it seems. The American information uh, ecosystem doesn't make sense anymore. It's too convoluted with misinformation for people to know where the truth stands. And what that means is that people are not incentivized to tell the truth or to cater to the truth. The economic infrastructure of information actually incentivizes people to say things that are outlandish, that cater to emotions that are very tribal. And Donald Trump is taking advantage of that. When Donald Trump came into office, he had mainstream media backing from Fox, America's most watched news channel, talk radio hosts like Rush Limbaugh, and online upstarts such as Breitbart News. You're putting more Democrats on than you have Republicans. It's something strange is going on at Fox, folks. The president now criticizes Fox for being insufficiently supportive and has steered his base to other networks that lean further to the right. 24-hour news channels, Newsmax, and One America News, OAN. Yeah, go ahead, OAN, OAN, please, OAN. Do you consider the term Chinese? OAN. Yes, sir. Thank very you. good. Thank you very questions. much. Um, treat me very nicely. When conspiracy theories about the election or quack science on COVID-19 make their way from social media and the dark corners of the web into the mainstream, Outlets like Newsmax and OAN are often their first ports of call. It's sort of like Trump TV all the time. I mean, it's just all, isn't Trump great? President Trump closes a year with a message underlining American achievements in the battle against the coronavirus pandemic. I mean, they're, they're often promoting really obvious conspiracy theories, stuff like that, that would never really make it on the air at Fox. A lot of these Newsmax and One America News shows sort of look like the stage is about to fall down and they're kind of held together with wire. Um, and so I don't think they're about to replace Fox, but I do think that Fox needs to be concerned about, um, you know, losing 10 to 20 percent of their audience. If you watch Newsmax and One American News, it's 
It's it's kind of cringeworthy. A year that saw Marxists and Black Lives Matter and Antifa burning, looting, beating, and killing their way through American streets. If you saw one of those clips in a movie, you probably think that's that's a little too ridiculous. That's North Korean style state media type of odd praise for the leader. Mr. President, thank you so much for having us here at the White House with you. Thank we you. appreciate it. Thank you very much. Your administration has been incredibly open to the press. If you were trying to make a satire of Fox News, uh, that's what you would do. Fox faces a, a, a real challenge. What does it want to be? There's a lot of people at Fox who, frankly, want to cover the news, cover the reality. It's clear, though, that a substantial portion of their audience is not interested in that, that they really do want amplification of Trump's lies, of his conspiracy theories, of whatever he has to say. And so that's a challenge for Fox. This part of the story was inevitable, a clear-cut case of cause and effect. The president's constant attacks on journalists, that label, the enemy of the people, has placed a target on their backs that they and their profession will wear long after Trump's gone. Having sold his base the lie about election fraud, implicating journalists as co-conspirators, detaching his supporters further still from reality, Donald Trump has made it harder than ever to bring those people back. This is a, a basic tenet of Trump backers, that the media is their enemy. It's not surprising at all that they were attacking media outlets, uh, writing murderous slogans, because this anger is real, and it has been manufactured in some cases over a very, very long time. Trump has taken it to the next extreme, and so now you've got a situation where there is a substantial portion of the American populace that believes that the media is not just biased, but is actually evil, that it is genuinely dangerous. Frankly, the, the future prospects uh, are very grim. There were people uh, in front of Congress who were um, you know, convinced that uh, Donald Trump is working with uh, the military to execute satanic Democrats. They were convinced people who you know, were trying to bring about a sort of white nationalist dictatorship. A lot of people in more classical journalism beats were in, in politics sort of treated this as a weird sideshow um, that, I, that we, people were chasing around a bunch of kooks on the internet and it wouldn't amount to anything. And, you know, unfortunately, I think the people who were tracking this, these groups have been proven right. The riot in Congress is perhaps the ultimate example uh, so far of, of how these sort of deranged internet conspiracy theories and movements, you know, are really wrecking uh, the American democracy. Donald Trump is one of the most predictable presidents we've ever had. He's not hard to read. He's going to create a lot of noise, try to contest the election so we can drive up base support. He loves the attention. And do I think he'll actually run in 2024? I don't know, but I think he'll be, you know, riding this wave of attention for the foreseeable future. And I think it's going to continue to put pressure on the traditional American information ecosystem to divide it, make it more tribal. And so a lot of the disinformation and misinformation that you see is only going to get worse. It was a good news quickly followed by bad news week for Julian Assange, the founder of WikiLeaks. A judge in the United Kingdom ruled that Assange would not be extradited to the U.S. to face espionage charges. And then, just two days later, that same judge rejected Assange's new bail application, meaning he must remain in prison. Flo Phillips has been watching this case for us. Flo, this is a mixed legal message from this judge, isn't it? 
Yes, Richard, because although the British court rejected the extradition request on humane grounds, the concern is that Julian Assange would be a suicide risk if he ended up in US prison, it did side with the US when it came to the substance of the case against him. That includes charges under the Espionage Act, which treats the publication of classified information as a criminal offence. Press freedom advocates are concerned that this verdict will set a precedent for the prosecution of all kinds of journalism in the UK. Here's how Reporters Without Borders described the ruling from outside the court. Now the court has failed uh, to make a clear stance in favour of, of press freedom. We need to see strengthened journalistic protections in this country, in the US and internationally. Because as things stand, nobody, no publisher, no journalist, no source, can be confident that the US government or that other governments won't pursue them in the same way. Just 10 years ago, Assange was being celebrated for his journalism. He was winning many awards. Then came the counter-strikes from more than one government. Indeed, Richard. Julian Assange's impact on investigative journalism, the practice of it, was widely acknowledged, celebrated even. But quite quickly, the tide turned when he became the subject of that Swedish investigation into allegations of sexual assault. It was dropped, but not before he'd taken refuge in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. He spent seven years there, reportedly being spied on through audio and video surveillance that was then provided to the CIA. He was arrested by the UK police in 2019, and he's been held ever since in a top security prison in the UK. Now, campaigners and even the United Nations have argued that the conditions that Julian Assange has been subjected to over the past 10 years have been a violation of his human rights. And let's not forget, Richard, that exactly this time four years ago, January 2017, one of the main sources for WikiLeaks, Chelsea Manning, was in fact pardoned by President Obama. Okay, thanks, Flo. This past week, thousands of Iraqis were on the streets of their capital to mourn the death of an Iranian. It's been a year since an American drone strike on the outskirts of Baghdad killed Qasem Soleimani, a general in Iran's Revolutionary Guard. Soleimani ran a clandestine network of militias, most of which operated outside Iran. He made his mark and many enemies across the Middle East. In his own country, Qasem Soleimani was something of a celebrity, a frequent presence in the media, and according to the official narrative, a national hero. Since his death, he's been cast by the authorities and the media outlets they oversee into a new role, that of the martyr. Martyrdom is a powerful concept, one that's long been at the heart of state-driven rhetoric in Iran. Since Soleimani's assassination, Iranians have been inundated with imagery glorifying him in death. The Listening Post's Tarak Nafa now on Qasem Soleimani and the media's manufacturing of martyrdom in the Islamic Republic of Iran. One year after he was killed in a US drone strike, the Shadow Commander's legend lives on. The propaganda around Qasem Soleimani seems limitless. You try to make the world a better place. The oppressed will not forget the smile on your face. Soleimani In the Middle East, Soleimani was feared, respected, and despised. He led an elite military unit responsible for securing Iran's interests on foreign soil, which is why he was in the Iraqi capital, Baghdad, when he was killed. 
Soleimani had already acquired a kind of mythical status before his assassination. قهرمانی جامعه الاطراف که هم متخصص جنگ بود و هم استراتژیست و سیاستمدار. In death, both the legend and the likeness live on, harnessed by a government in Tehran that has credibility issues of its own. There was an initial shock soon after the assassination of Qasem Soleimani because he was considered to be invincible. But he was not invincible. He was located by a drone and he was attacked and he was killed. So they are putting the best face to this scenario that they can. Everything in the arsenal of the propaganda machinery of Islamic Republic has been mobilized in order to turn him into a saintly figure, into a martyr, into an icon of everlasting revolution. آرامش رزمندگان جبهه مقاومت گرمی دل فرزندان شهدا Suleimani the martyr, larger than life, immortalized in the still image. Pictures like these dominated Iran's physical and cyberspace after his death, bestowing Suleimani with a status typically reserved for mythical heroes and saints. From the Battle of Karbala and the martyrdom of Imam Hussein in the year 680, a foundational event in the Shia faith, to the Iran-Iraq War of the 1980s, in which an estimated one million Iranians lost their lives, the veneration of Soleimani speaks a visual language around martyrdom that runs deep in Iran. Martyrdom has become a key an essential part of state-sponsored rhetoric because explanations have to be made for an overabundance of deaths. So an explanation had to give greater meaning to the bloodshed, that a death is not the end, it is just the beginning. And so we have seen since his death many images that equate him with Imam Hussein and therefore as an ultimate martyr whose reward is paradise. Imam Hussein is, is very important for Shia Muslims in general. He's the, he's the grandson of the Prophet Muhammad. He's particularly important in the post-revolutionary sphere in the Islamic Republic because the way in which Imam Hussein was martyred is a story uh, as told by Shia Muslims of oppressors rising up against those who oppress them. It is a image that, that resonates almost immediately for for anyone who is viewing this. And the reason it can communicate so much is because of historical mythology, as well as almost four decades of image making in this sense. So the propaganda machinery of the Islamic Republic uses the reconfiguration of the picture of Qasem Soleimani into that iconography in order to revalidate and re-energize the Shi'i component of the Islamic a revolution. Martyr, Shaheed in Persian and Arabic has a connotation of being a witness. Witness to what? Witness to truth. Witness to the veracity of the Iranian revolution. The Iranian government knows that the revolution needs to be nourished, reimagined with each generation. And it has a convenient and flexible platform for that messaging in the billboards, banners, and murals found in cities across Iran. The political propaganda of Iran's billboards is sometimes more subtle than that found on TV. Billboards are by design more fluid, more responsive. They can be unfurled overnight 
and changed just as quickly to meet the needs of the day. The image of the military salute with General Soleimani in the front and a variety of Iranian citizens standing in salute behind him includes women with very loose hijab and one very small boy. He's engaging in a form of sign language that forms a T. In Iran, the T stands for the vertical bodies of soldiers that head into war only to be returned horizontally. What has struck me about this billboard on Valiyah Square is that you don't see a single ayatollah or cleric. There's no over-religious iconography. And that stands out for me in comparison to the other images, which in fact embrace a more religious rather than nationalistic stance. Before his death, Soleimani had already become a compelling character in a story the government wants to tell about itself. Movies and music videos have been produced about the self-effacing general who fought the nation's enemies abroad to, as Tehran claims, keep Iranians safe. Soleimani himself cultivated that image posing for Instagram selfies with his network of proxy militias that for many are a symbol of Iran's malign influence in the Middle East. His strategy on Instagram was to selectively put images of himself, especially in Syria, to show that he is at the helm of various militias and divisions, that he has been a successful tactician and leader. So if you were a Syrian looking at those images on Instagram, in essence, those images are highly agitational. It's a way of asserting power. So once he was killed in the way that he was, his own media teams went into high gear, producing from murals to uh, social media campaigns. Oftentimes, it's very difficult actually to tell that it's coming from pro-regime producers in Iran because they know that if their young audiences in Iran or maybe even in Iraq and Lebanon know where these are coming from, they're going to be like, oh, that's propaganda and not pay attention to it. Instead, they're doing it in a way where they're removing as many of their fingerprints as possible, but producing things that are entertaining first and foremost. In life and in death. Soleimani helped build an image of a powerful Iran. But the government is in many ways its own worst PR problem. In the weeks before Soleimani's assassination, security forces used lethal force to crush nationwide protests, killing hundreds of citizens. Just days after Soleimani was killed, as the authorities were trying to unify the nation against outside enemies, the accidental shooting down of a Ukrainian airliner, the deaths of all 176 people on board, and the initial official denials that followed angered Iranians. And protests in Iraq and Lebanon have since shown that the Iranian sphere of influence that Soleimani helped build is seen by many as an obstacle to change. One need only look at the subversion of Soleimani's image to see that not everyone is buying what Tehran is selling. The state is aware of its own fundamental illegitimacy in a modern world that you have a group of uh, octogenarian theologians ruling over a massively young generation. And they don't even have a memory of the Iran revolution of 1977-79. And even if they did, they couldn't care less. 
So they want to generate and sustain a younger generation for posterity that will keep the Islamic Republic alive. To what degree this is successful, you can see it in the anxiety of the way that they are projecting Ghassan Soleimani. The larger the, uh, the pictures, the larger the posters, the longer the graffitis and the frescoes, the more sign of the fact that they realize that the time of this iconography has really passed. It doesn't sell. And finally, back to Donald Trump, his so-called path to victory, and the so-called news outlets in his corner. We've featured the work of Mark Fiore here before. He's an American satirist and cartoonist. Prior to the fiasco on Capitol Hill, Fiore compiled a collection of the nonsensical arguments the Trump camp has been making about the election results that have been spread by the likes of Newsmax, OAN, Breitbart, and yes, Fox News. It's a quick trip through the far-right news bubble that so many Trump supporters have inhabited before making their trip to Washington. We'll see you next time here at The Listening Post. Trump News Network. Not just one network, but a network of networks. Because Trump. Tonight on Trump News Network, the one and true president's path to victory. Because the fake news media doesn't decide the winner. Counted and recounted votes decide the winner. Because counted and recounted votes don't decide the winner, certified votes decide the winner. Because certified votes don't decide the winner, the courts decide the winner. Courts don't decide the winner, the Electoral College decides the winner. Electors don't decide the winner, Congress decides the winner. It's not Congress that decides the winner, it's some new Michigan court case that decides the winner. If it's not that court case that decides the winner, it's a startling revelation on a podcast or blog that decides the winner. The path to victory. On Trump News Network, tonight and every night, for at least the next four years, brought to you by Donald J. Trump's Miracle Election Defense Task Force. Give now, give always.